electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. NVIDIA, check. Powell, check. PCE and jobs on deck. And if you want to figure out where the markets go from here, there's one index our guest is watching closely for clues. She's going to join us with the ticker and the trades she likes. Plus, from the economy to national security, it's complicated and costly when it comes to U.S.-China relations. Fixing one of the concerns could come with a $40 billion price tag. The details are ahead. And beyond the matrix, Neo getting ready to report as the China EV race heats up. We have the story, the action, and the trade on that name, and two retailers on deck. But we begin with today's market, and Dom Chu has got the numbers. It, they're pretty positive, John, and really it has been all session long. So what we want to take a look at right now is a market that's generally tilting more towards the upside. The S&P 500 currently sitting uh, solidly, we'll say, above the 4,400 mark, 4,432, the last trade there, up 26 points, roughly one half of 1%. Similar percentage advance for the blue chip Dow Industrials, 34,572. It's up about 225 points. Again, positive but off-session highs. The Nasdaq Composite up about three-quarters of 1%, 105 points to the upside, 13,696. The reason why I want to bring up the Nasdaq is because we have seen a little bit of a reversal, many of sorts intraday. Technology was one of the bigger laggards in terms of sectors overall. It's turned around. One of the reasons why was an underperformance in NVIDIA, one of the key stocks in the market so far in 2023. As you can see, earlier today, we were negative, and now we are solidly positive, up nearly one full percent, about three quarters of one percent right now. So an intraday reversal in NVIDIA. Remember, one of the best, I should say, the best performing stock in the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 has now shown a little bit more of a hovering around current levels right now. So we'll see whether or not that momentum stays that way. A stock that's been very much to the upside, maybe losing just a little bit of steam relatively on a very short-term basis. And John mentioned the China stuff happening. Xpeng on the EV side is one part of the story. But China is taking measures to actively try to prop up its stock market. I'm not sure if that's good or bad or whether that's a good or a bad sign. But what we are seeing is some positivity in Chinese stocks listed here in the U.S. Alibaba, JD.com, Pinduoduo, NetEase, even the ETFs that track the Chinese market are all decently higher, although kind of maybe just off the best levels of the day. So, uh, John, when it comes to China and the Internet, big technology companies, the Chinese government is obviously now taking active steps to prop up their economy. Whether or not they're staying momentum with some of these Chinese names remains to be seen, but I'm sure it's a big conversation a lot of folks are having about just how much momentum there is left. I'll yeah. send things back over to you. We're going to have some more of it now, Dom. Thanks. Uh, speaking of China, Commerce Secretary Raimondo wraps up her first day of high-level talks with country officials. Raimondo pushed the importance of a strong economic relationship between the U.S. and China, saying she was ready to work together to foster a more favorable policy environment. For more here, let's bring in somebody who's familiar with Raimondo's role, former Commerce Secretary Carlos Gutierrez. Uh, Carlos, welcome. Um, now, you say that Chinese President Xi's motivation has been to reestablish the Communist Party's grip on the economy 
and that this trip is unlikely to yield measurable results. So what's the function of these trips for China's leadership? Is it to project strength internally? Well, um, I believe that uh, Xi Jinping saw, uh, this is their point of view, saw that the state, the party, uh, was giving up ground and was being overshadowed by other institutions, foreign companies, Chinese companies, uh, universities, NGOs, consultants. And what he's been doing over the last uh, almost decade is restoring the control, um, uh, the central control. Now, having said that, in the meantime, the economy has not performed, especially now, whether it be COVID, the property market, the stock market, consumers. And this is a sign, I believe, that they are shifting toward the economy uh, after having achieved quite a bit of control. But look, the, the outcome of this meeting, just the fact the meeting was held, I think is very good news. That means that both sides are talking again and are willing to move forward. So the 737 max was good news. Uh, we also took uh, a number of companies off the unverified list. So there are signs that um, the relationship will be restored to what it once was some time back. It'll hmm. take some time. Is that, is that even possible? I mean, I, I feel like we in America tend to view engagement as a positive in and of itself. But over time, uh, when it comes to China in particular, engagement hasn't always meant what, what we thought. But to go to um, the, the economy there for a moment, what impact do you expect China's real estate woes are going to have on the economy there and on the public companies base there, which Dom mentioned are higher today? Yeah, look, property has been one of the drivers from the very beginning. This is something where the, the, the central government was, um, was raising a lot of money. So absolutely, property will, will have an impact. It's already having an impact. Um, I expect it will continue to affect companies in the stock market. I saw the, what you had up there. That could also be just a sign that the U.S. and China are talking which is a very good sign. I think we've all been expecting this. We've all been asking for this. Um, again, I don't think that there will be some very specific um, gives or, or asks or, or outcomes of this meeting. Uh, they're probably saving some of those outcomes for, for a meeting between President Xi and President Biden. Mm, so, okay. you know, don't expect to hear a lot of specifics, but the fact that they're having this meeting is a very big step forward. You mentioned presidents, uh, allies and rivals of the U.S. are starting to weigh the likelihood of a second Trump presidency. Uh, how does that affect the way that China is going to deal with us now and the way the Biden administration should deal with China? Well, I think uh, another Trump presidency would create uncertainty. And I think that's just the, the, the nature, the style. What is the policy to China? Who knows? We know what it's been in the past. The tariffs are still in place, but it just it, it creates uncertainty. And when there is uncertainty, um, people can use it to their advantage, but it doesn't yield results. So, so I think this. I mean, does that mean China's going to want to try to do certain things to lock in either agreements, uh, connections, consequences? 
Should there be a, uh, a, a president next who's more likely to want to raise tariffs and, and rattle the saber? Well, it could be. You know, in terms of formal agreements, I, I, I don't know what can be done between now and year end. But these are not um, congressional bills. This is not signed into law. So if uh, a future president wants to change this, a future president can do that. And, and that, of course, is part of the issue. Um, the one thing that's remained constant, by the way, is export controls. Uh, and this is part of, will be the tension in the meeting. I don't remember a time when export controls were taken off the list. The list started in 1989, and we just added and added. And I think Secretary Raimundo did a great job up front in saying, look, we're not going to negotiate matters of national security. So export controls are off the table. One of the issues in negotiating with China is that we'll go in with 10 different asks, and they will have one, export controls, which makes negotiation um, somewhat tricky. All right. Uh, Secretary, former Secretary Carlos Gutierrez, thanks for joining us here thanks, on the exchange. Thanks, I do want to mention upswing in the Dow and the S&P, just as the exchange was beginning, has those closer to the highs of the day so far. Now, cooperation is a key part of Secretary Raimondo's visit. She's also making it a point to reiterate there's no room for compromise or negotiation on matters of national security. That includes cybersecurity, where the federal government is now warning of a hidden threat to America's infrastructure. Our Eamon Javers has the details. Eamon. That's right, John. American officials are scrambling to make sure potential weaknesses in the software used to operate American infrastructure have not been penetrated by Chinese and Russian hostile actors. They're focusing on the threat to so-called open source software, which is developed by hobbyists and others and put in the public domain. Software companies that make infrastructure systems often use large chunks of open source code in their programs. But the fear here is that hackers could be developing this code and then releasing it to the public, which seeds vulnerabilities out there in the open world. On August 10th, the, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, known as CISA, asked the open source community for ideas on how to secure the code. And a government official tells CNBC that CISA plans to release a draft national strategy for open source security in the months to come. Meanwhile, a new report from a cybersecurity fr firm highlights the potential threat. Researchers at Fortress Information Security discovered that 90 percent of the products used to manage America's energy grid contained contributions from developers who said they were from Russia or China. And they say Russian and Chinese open source code is three times more likely to have vulnerabilities than code from other regions. Now, Fortress estimates the cost to replace all that. That could be a staggering $40 billion. And given those huge costs, not likely that companies are going to pay to replace all of that software or bear all of that cost. But CISA is making it clear that it believes software companies that consume open source software should be able to contribute back to the security of that overall software as well, John. That, that's complicated. Now, I know there's a, uh, a specific move in security that's called a Trojan horse, but really what you have in this open source construct is a Trojan horse type situation where, you know, you get a gift of code from maybe a Russian or Chinese developer and inside right. there's a vulnerability, right? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And from the, the hostile actor's point of view, if you're the hacker trying to seed this stuff into the world, you don't necessarily know where it's going to go. You just kind of write code that does specific tasks, uh, put it out there on these open source platforms and wait for someone to adopt it. And then later on, go and check and see if that vulnerability made it into the final product. So it's sort of a speculative you know, gamble on the part of hackers to do it this way. But there is concern now that that may have happened. And the trick is going through all of that code and finding out which lines of code are secure and which lines might have vulnerabilities. That's going to be an expense and somebody's going to have to pay for it. Yeah. Sounds like a job for AI, maybe. Uh, Could be. To the degree that this code is signed. Eamon Javers, thank you. You uh, let's do some more on this. Uh, countries like China, Russia, and North Korea all have well-funded and sophisticated cyber attack programs. My next guest says the origin of attack is becoming less important than preventing the attack in the first place. AI might offer the best defense. Joining me now to discuss is Amit Yoren, the CEO of cybersecurity company Tenable. Amit, welcome. Um, so machine learning in cybersecurity is not new. What can AI do to solve this problem of perhaps open source code being contributed from questionable sources? Well, I think AI, while it holds a lot of promise, uh, is really a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's reasonable to expect that adversaries, that hackers, will be using AI to more rapidly identify vulnerabilities, more rapidly develop exploit code to weaponize and take advantage of those vulnerabilities and conduct very large scale and, and highly targeted attacks against American infrastructure, uh, American businesses and steal intellectual property and do all sorts of bad things. The inverse of that is true too. We can use AI as Tenable has been doing to identify which pieces of software have vulnerability, how severe those vulnerabilities are, and what can be done to help security teams understand both those vulnerabilities and how to prioritize uh, remediations and activities that can help them reduce risk. I want to take a step back and talk about Tenable itself. You guys had results about a month ago. Right now, enterprise software seems to be hitting this stabilizing moment after a rough couple of quarters. And you seem to express that in your call as well. Cybersecurity is not immune from the impact of this macro environment. What are you seeing in uh, customer willingness to expand their engagement with you? I know you had some good things to say about Tenable One and, and that package that you've got, more people adopting that, but where's the, where's the tension? Where's the friction? Yeah, well, first we're seeing very strong demand broadly in cybersecurity. This is an issue, it's a particular concern for organizations. The SEC recently issued new rulings which require public companies in the U.S. to disclose their cybersecurity risk management practices and also disclose breaches. Now, that's going to cause a lot of executives, a lot of CEOs, a lot of audit and risk committees and boards of directors to ask questions, to pay more attention to cybersecurity. How at risk are we? How secure are we? Are we vulnerable? So broadly speaking, uh, these issues aren't going away. Demand is strong. We also believe that in the current macro, we have the opportunity to provide cost reduction and vendor consolidation. When you move to platform-based security, like Tenable offers to our customers, you can help address not only traditional vulnerabilities, but you can look at access and entitlements. You can look at cloud security, and you can bring uh, multiple disciplines of security together to provide both more effective security and help customers reduce cost. And there's news in this space all along, so Amit, uh, hold on for just a minute. We've got an alert on ChatGPT and OpenAI. Steve Kovac has the story. Steve? 
Hey there, John. Yeah, so OpenAI just announcing moments ago a new version of ChatGPT for enterprise. Now, you can kind of think of this, John, as a locked down version of ChatGPT that people can use in their businesses. They can upload their proprietary information without using that information to be viewable by ChatGPT or used to train their models. You might remember over the last several months, we've heard so many companies talk about how they have banned ChatGPT at the workplace. That includes like Apple and Samsung and Google even from uh, banning their coders from uploading code into this. This is uh, supposed to address that. Now, however, they are not uh, giving a price for this, but for a little context, the consumer version of ChatGPT is about 20 bucks a month. And I would also note Microsoft, which is, of course, OpenAI's major investor, they had a, a version of this, uh, their own version of this, rather, called Bing for Enterprise. It's a, it works in a very similar way, also based on ChatGPT4. John, I'll send it back over to you. Steve Kovac. Thank you. I mean, we're seeing a flurry of software announcements having to do with AI. We're expecting to hear more from Salesforce uh, at Dreamforce coming up uh, later next month. Uh, Expecting to hear from ServiceNow as well. Several others. Uh, How long does it take to secure this stuff as new products, new versions? Now we're talking about ChatGPT for Enterprise come out. Well, we see not only ChatGPT, but we see Google and we see other uh, large software companies using and distributing uh, generative AI technologies. It takes a while for this stuff to be secure. You know, Microsoft has had notorious uh, problems with their cloud security. Recently, there was a large uh, intrusion of government email uh, by the Chinese stealing very sensitive information uh, based on vulnerability in well-known, well-understood Microsoft software cloud products. So I think it's also reasonable to expect some of these newer products, some of these newer applications will have software Uh, And there'll be new attack techniques against generative AIs that we haven't seen before. So uh, I wouldn't consider this highly secure and like we've mastered it, but it is an important part of how enterprises are going to be developing software and intellectual property going forward. I've got a question about that, because imagine a scenario where someone inside the organization uh, has a divided loyalty and is actually working on behalf of a competitor or a foreign government and is is querying AI to take data out of the enterprise and perhaps passing it along. Now, uh, how does zero trust security work in that situation? Does it understand who a person is, what the queries are, and therefore what data they've they've acquired? Because it seems to me to be a, a little bit squishier, more difficult to understand exactly which data points have been accessed when there's AI kind of in between pulling different data points together and delivering an answer. Yeah, with, with AI, with a lot of modern AIs, you're seeing this, this abstraction layer. So users don't necessarily know what data is being assessed, what data is being brought together, how the conclusions of the AI uh, are being drawn. So it does make the, the job of security practitioners trying to uh, detect and ferret out a malicious insider all the more difficult, all the more uh, complex. And when you use terms like you know zero trust, I think what we're really talking about is layering in techniques, making sure that your security program doesn't rely on any one mechanism for its survival or for it to be affected. It would be the user and what entitlements and and, uh, permissions they have. It's also what vulnerabilities exist in the environment. And it's the combination of things which can lead to disaster, but also which can provide compensating controls and overlapping layers to minimize damage and risk uh, should you have a malicious insider. 
Finally, you mentioned in your latest earnings uh, call that there's been a return to the larger six-figure deals as the, uh, as the area normalizes. What is the, the particular interest that customers have when they're doing those larger deals? Is it trying to get a bigger package of software value-wise? Uh, is it future-proofing what? Yeah, I think it's a, a combination of things. One is this, it's this recognition that understanding your cyber risk and understanding your level of cybersecurity and where you have exposures and addressing those exposures proactively isn't a nice to have in this environment. As this SEC points out with its rulings, like this is a mandatory requirement. Cyber risk is a critical component of business risk and you have duty of care to understand it and to manage it very uh, proactively. So we think there's growing opportunity, especially in the large enterprise market, to help them understand their cyber exposure and risk, and also to help them reduce costs through consolidating ven- vendors and, and delivering them more and greater insights on this platform uh, opportunity. All right. Lots to understand here. Uh, more every day. Amit Yoren, uh, the CEO of Tenable. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, Fed Chair Powell's speech was front and center for investors on Friday. But what's the next thing that should be on investors' radar? We will get the next potential catalysts for stocks, plus two key consumer names and a Chinese EV maker report before the bell. We have the action, the story, and the trade on all three ahead in Earnings Exchange. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Jackson Hole might be in the rearview mirror, but there's still plenty of data on deck for investors to digest. Bob Pisani is at the New York Stock Exchange with a look at the week ahead for Wall Street. Hey, Bob. Hi, John. The markets breathed a sigh of relief after Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell's slightly hawkish but mostly neutral speech at Jackson Hole last week. So what's next for the markets? Well, the good news is, even though much of the trading community will be off this week, we're about to exit this news vacuum that we've been in for the past couple of weeks. This week, we'll bring important data that will help determine if we are indeed getting the below-trend jobs growth Jay Powell's looking for. We'll get the JOLTS jobs opening report Tuesday, July PCE deflator Thursday, non-farm payrolls on Friday. So far, August is proving to be a garden variety 4 or 5% correction. Rates have adjusted higher to account for the strong economic reports we've seen in August, and rate-sensitive sectors like tech and communication services have seen a re-rating of their stock prices this month. But mostly, we're still up strongly for the year, particularly in tech. The bad news is stocks are still very expensive by historic standards, particularly tech. Interest rates seem like they want to push a little bit higher, and China is still weak. 
but the market is still positioned for that Goldilocks soft landing. That means stocks are vulnerable if the economic data continues to come in strong because the Fed will keep rates higher for longer. Remember, the market is positioned for this fabled soft landing. So the pain trade, the trade that would make the most discomfort for the most investors is for strong growth to continue into September and October. That means rates would continue to creep higher and it would mean the markets would likely be a bit lower in September. We'll see. John, back to you. All right. Thanks, Bob. Stocks higher right now, but the major averages are down for the month, with the Nasdaq down nearly 5%. As the market tries to regain its footing with only a few days left in August, my next guest is keeping her eye on a few sectors in particular for any clues on where we might go from here. Joining me now is Chief Global Strategist at LPL Financial, Quincy Crosby. Quincy, welcome. So uh, a week ago today, the 10-year peaked at about 4.34% in the yield. Now it's under 4.3% under 4.23 at the moment. How important is that to the sectors that you're tracking? It's extremely important for the sectors, but also the overall market. Uh, This week, we have $127 billion worth of notes, the uh, two, five, and sevens. They they should do well with these yields, but it's an awful lot for the uh, treasury market to digest. If they're having trouble with that, it could push the yields higher, higher than we want. We'll see how the market reacts to that, because that's certainly been an issue for the market. It isn't just that the better economic data is pushing the yields up. It is the amount that the Treasury has to auction off to pay bills. What does better mean this month when it comes to economic data, right? When we're looking ahead to PCE and, and this jobs number, is it you know, strong but not too strong? Is it a little weaker, a little better still? Well, what you could be looking for, really, I think, is the uh, wages. Uh, it doesn't even matter, you know, where the, the number comes in, 182,000 new jobs, 210,000 new jobs. If those wages continue to climb higher, it is not going to be seen as positive for uh, the market. Because in addition to all of that, take a look at the deals that are out there in the market right now in terms of negotiating. United Auto Workers, uh, the, the airline pilots. Uh, United Parcel Service, all getting higher wages. This is not something that the Fed wants to see at this point, because clearly they're going to want to raise prices across the board for the ultimate uh, consumer, whether it's retail or whether it's uh, business. So which should investors pay more attention to? The number that we get on Friday where wages are concerned or what we can see unfolding before us with the auto workers almost certain to go on strike, asking for some really big numbers Uh, 40 percent raise it and perhaps more likely than ever to get them because UPS drivers did so well. Exactly. And this is a side pressure on the market. Uh, The Treasury market is going to be picking up on this, that wages are going higher. We'll probably start to see prices climbing even more. We started to see prices paid components of the ISM manufacturing, the ISM service sector starting to inch higher. But that is nothing compared with what could happen as the the auto workers get higher wages. The car prices are high enough. The new car prices are high enough, coupled with uh, loans that are just out of reach for most Americans. This is going to be, I think, dangerous for the overall economy. I don't want to sound like Paul Volcker, uh, but keep in mind, keep in mind uh, the Fed 
uh, and, and the, you know, the doves and the hawks are watching this. This is not something they want to see. So is that effectively, you think, a floor under yields then and a potential ceiling on equities? Well, yeah. I mean, if you start to see the yields climb above 4-4, four, four, climbing higher, it isn't the fact that we're moving into a higher uh, range. Uh, we had 70 years of just about 5% on the 10-year. It is the quick move, the quick pace that we're seeing. We went cold turkey from zero negative rates to now rates that we haven't seen in many years. And what that means is that those that took out uh, loans at a lower rate suddenly are facing higher rates so quickly. That's the issue. It is the speed at which this is happening. The calculus is changing. And as we go to that transition in calculus, it's going to cause pain for private equity firms, for commercial real estate, and individuals who've taken out variable loans on, on a number of products, including their homes. Yeah, the winds are picking up out there economically for sure. Yeah. Quincy Crosby, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for more investment ideas, be sure to tune in to a special back-to-school edition of Mad Money with Jim Cramer. That series starts tonight and continues all week long at 6 p.m. Eastern. Now, coming up, Messy Mania hit the Big Apple this weekend, but the company Apple is betting on him to boost its bottom line. Apple's streaming goal and the ripple effects on the media landscape ahead. The exchange is back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Yeah. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update this hour. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis committed $1 million to boost security at the historically black college that was originally targeted by the white gunman who then went on a rampage in Jacksonville. The governor also pledged an additional $100,000 to a charity supporting the families of the victims at the Dollar General store. Hawaiian Electric acknowledged its role in the Maui wildfires for the first time. The company released a statement in response to Maui County's lawsuit saying its power lines fell in high wind, likely causing the fire. The company added that the power lines had been turned off six hours before the second blaze started. Hawaiian Electric faulted firefighters who allegedly declared the fire contained and left the scene only for the fire to reignite that afternoon. The Department of Transportation fining American Airlines more than $4 million for keeping passengers on board during long ground delays. The department said this is the largest fine issued against an airline since ground delay rules were created a decade ago. John, back to you. Tyler, thank you. And coming up, Neil, Best Buy, J.M. Smucker on deck with results before the bell. We will get you the numbers and the narratives to know ahead of those reports next. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Earnings season winding down, but we've still got big names reporting. Neo, Best Buy, JM Smucker all out before the bell tomorrow. 
Joining me now for the trade in today's earnings exchange is Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial CEO and a CNBC contributor. Hey, Jeff, let's kick things off with NEO. Shares higher ahead of the print, but taking a hit this month, falling about 28% despite doubling deliveries in July compared with a year prior. The street's going to be keeping an eye on ramping competition and a sluggish Chinese economic recovery. Speaking of competition, another Chinese EV startup also in the headlines today, Xpeng says it'll buy Didi's smart electric car development business in a $744 million all-stock deal. Jeff, you say the bad news has been priced into NEO. Maybe it'd be doing better if its name were VinFast. <laughs> That's a great point, John, but I want to be a buy here of NEO. And yes, you're absolutely right. We are seeing nearly 20% drop in just the last month. Yes, it's up 11% year to date, but it's had so much to grapple with. It's in reaction to lower margins due to Tesla cutting prices. But when you think about the EV market, 60% of it comes out of China. So I think there's exposure here and you can own this directly in NEO or PGJ. That's the Golden Dragon Index ETF, where there's about a 5% position in the NEO in that ETF. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at the way it's going to move higher, technically it has support at the 20 moving average just down at 10. But I think if it gets back above its 50 moving average at 1135, it could go back to where it was a year ago at 16, 17, 18. That's 50% higher. So I think a lot of the bad news is priced in, in Neo. And I think if you want exposure, as we really had a hard time measuring, any asset manager, money manager out there has had a very difficult time measuring the reboot out of China and the zero COVID ramifications. This is why it's priced in. That's why it's down 45% over the last year. And that's why I want to be a buyer here from a trade perspective, but also, John, from a longer term exposure to the Chinese EV market. Okay. Well, from electric vehicles, to electric gadgets. Up next, Best Buy shares took a hit last week as retailers like Dix and Foot Locker reported disappointing results, thanks in part to higher inventory shrink that stolen damaged and missing goods. But Best Buy has long had shrink prevention measures in place, so it might fare better than others. Piper Sandler also noting the start of new replacement and innovation cycles could help drive sales. Jeff, you're a buyer, but with some caveats. Yeah, there's always a caveat, right, when you're trading names like this. And if you think Best Buy on a long timeline, John, it's dragged the S&P 500 year to date, one year, three year, five year, even 10 year. But this is a name that you can own in certain timelines. And I think the consumer is front and center here. And if we do see this inflation, I know it's coming down from where it was in June of 2022 at 9.1%, but still, you're rethinking some of the big purchases. We all love big TVs, but I think that spending has slowed down. So I want to see Best Buy turn around. I want to buy this name lower. If you look at the relative strength index, I really like getting a better understanding of emotion, which can be measured in the relative strength index. It's at 26, John. That's oversold condition. So I think it goes a little bit lower before it turns around here. But I will be interested to see what they think about the U.S. consumer from this earnings call. All right, Jeff. Uh, finally, J.M. Smucker with a name like that. Do the results have to be good. The shares also lower this month by about 5% as competitors like Kraft Heinz reported higher uh, prices hit sales volumes last quarter. Back in June, Smucker warned that inflation, supply chain challenges, and ongoing macro uncertainty are going to continue to impact results, pose risks for its full year outlook. Jeff, you're staying away 
from Smucker. I, I am an insert dad joke, but this is a <laughs> sticky situation, John. You know, you look at this chart, it's ugly. I see some support at 135, but if you break 135, it looks like 120 is the next stop. And I think I just would rather own something else. You look at General Mills, but when you talk about the, again, being the lagger that, uh, you know, Smuckers has been on a year to date, one year, three year, five year, I just want to stay away from a name like this. It doesn't make sense to have exposure. This earnings season has revealed the consumer strength, but at the end of the day, I'm not seeing it. It seems a little jammed up. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, difficult spread there, uh, Jeff Kilberg. I may have put myself in probation, John. Two dad jokes in the same segment, so. Hey, you'll get no complaints from me, from one dad to another. <laughs> Nicely done, Jeff Kilberg. Thank you. Uh, now, last week, members of the United Auto Workers Union voted overwhelmingly to strike during ongoing contract negotiations if it is warranted, and that will impact plants not just here in the U.S., but also internationally. More on that next. Welcome back. Members of the United Auto Workers could be on strike as soon as next Friday, and that would impact production in the U.S. nearly immediately, but it could also ground production uh, in Mexico, a key manufacturing center for the big three. Phil LeBeau joins me now with how the union might use that leverage. Phil? John, we're less than three weeks away from September 15th, which would be the first day that we theoretically could see a strike by the United Auto Workers. There are approximately 150,000 members between General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. And last week, as you mentioned before the break, they voted overwhelmingly to authorize their leadership to call for a strike if there's no negotiation uh, or an agreement on a contract by midnight on the 14th. What does that mean for production in Mexico? Well, keep in mind that Mexico plants for GM, Stellantis, and Ford, they're not under UAW uh, representation. However, despite that fact, as you take a look at their production, which is about 20% of North American volume overall for the big three, keep in mind that they receive key components in Mexico from north of the border, from UAW shops, engines, transmissions. And ultimately, if some of those plants are cut down because of a strike or if there's a strike that uh, limits no production, well, then you wouldn't see production ultimately stop or be severely limited out of Mexico. And the bottom line is that whether it's something like the Ram 1500 pickup truck, Chevy Silverado, the Ford Bronco, these vehicles would not be flowing from Mexico here to the United States. And ultimately, most believe within a matter of uh, five or six days, you would see Mexico production grind to a halt. And again, it depends on if there is a strike and where is the strike at? Is it across the entire automaker or is it only at key plants? Just take a look at shares of GM, Ford, and Stellantis. We've talked about this for some time, John. They are looking for a 40% pay raise. Nobody knows if they're going to ultimately get a portion of that, how much of that they're going to get. But they're asking for a lot, and it goes beyond the pay raise. It goes to cost of living adjustments, 32-hour work week, uh, other guarantees that they want built into this contract. I think that most people are looking at September 15th and they're saying, okay, likelihood is we're probably going to see a strike of some sort. These are asks that would have seemed unthinkable a decade ago. And I just wonder, should a strike happen? And it looks right now, who knows how long it would be, but it seems like you're saying the likelihood is that a strike will happen. How big are the economic ripple effect, uh, effects of a potential strike here? When we're talking suppliers, we're talking community right. impacts that are different from what you would see with a UPS. Sure. Well, yeah, especially in the upper Midwest. That's where you would see the biggest impact. You can only immediately look at the big three. 
and it's somewhere in the range of between 450 and 750, 770 million dollars every week, depending on the automaker. And if they are completely shut down, or if, are they only hitting one automaker and the other two continue their production? So it's hard to say at this point where the impact is beyond the automakers, but no doubt there is a huge ripple effect beyond the auto industry if there is a strike. Yeah, it seems particularly uh, for this uh, industry. Phil LeBeau, on the case as always, we appreciate it. Still ahead, Inter-Miami, not the only entity winning thanks to Lionel Messi. Why Apple could be another beneficiary of Messi Mania is next. Welcome back. It's been a little more than a month since Lionel Messi signed with Major League Soccer team Inter-Miami. And while he is boosting the sports profile here in the U.S., Messi could also mean big bucks for Apple's streaming service, which announced a 10-year deal with Major League Soccer back in February. Joining me now is Evercourse Mark Mahaney, who says streamers will become increasingly more competitive for sports rights, along with our Steve Kovac and Julia Borston. Julia, how could Apple's leverage uh, with Messi help its uh, popularity? Well, John, Apple is already benefiting from what we're calling the Lionel Messi effect. After Messi joined Inter-Miami mid-July that month, web and mobile traffic to Apple TV Plus surged 45% globally and 87% in the U.S. That's according to new data we just got from Similar Web. Now, so far in August through Saturday, traffic is up 53% from a year earlier. And within a month of Messi joining the team, its owner tweeted out that subscribers to Apple's MLS season pass have more than doubled. It's worth noting that Messi is an ambassador for the league and also for the subscription service. His deal with Inter-Miami includes a share of MLS season pass revenue. John. Huh, interesting. Um, Mark Mahaney, what does this mean for where the money for the streamers looks like it's going to go, especially given that we've got a, a strike from actors and writers and Lionel Messi himself is like a hit show? Well, uh, no, you got, you, streaming platforms are going after live sports rights. That's very clear. Uh, this is Apple's, I think, first major exclusive live sports deal. They're joining the club. They're joining Amazon and Google YouTube, which have been aggressively bidding for sports rights now for a couple of years. The one company that's not in there is Netflix. I think Netflix is going to hit this through shows like Quarterback, Drive to Survive, kind of through the, I don't know, the 30 for 30 shows. That's that's ESPN, but but you know that kind of sh that kind of show rather than uh, live sports. Um, uh, but yeah, given the, the writer strike, which is a real issue for all streaming companies, maybe there's a small relative advantage for Netflix, but it's just small. Overall, it's a negative development. If they can't get this resolved, it does make people who've got live sports, they're going to be more attractive to audiences through the balance of the year when there's probably going to be a, a deficit of new content launched. So that is that there, there is a real issue here. Steve Kovac, this is an interesting feather in Apple's cap, given yeah. that the, the Apple TV strategy for them has been spend less on a curated set of things. They were doing that before it became popular to just spend less. That's right. They're trying to be like what HBO used to be back in the day under Richard Puffler, you know, just this high quality Oscar bait, Emmy bait content. But when I think of sports, John, I also think of Vision Pro. Now that's further out, of course, before this actually becomes a thing. But when I got a demo of that back in June when they first announced it, one of the demo reels they showed me was an NBA game and an MLB game. The MLB game, I was sitting right there on third base. It looked like the ball was coming right at me. The NBA game behind the basket 
basket. So you can imagine where they're thinking about this. Uh, we heard from Charlotte Silver of, um, of the NBA talk about how they're already thinking about adding this kind of stuff or NBA content to the Vision Pro. So it's more than just like, let's get more subscribers for Apple TV. Sports could be a huge thing for this next computing platform that they're trying to make happen next year. Julia, um, Amazon said to be talking to Disney about ESPN. And uh, the discipline on spending, I, I think, is a question. Apple seems to have kind of struck gold here or maybe struck oil right with Messi. You couldn't see it beneath the surface until it sort of happened. Do you think this makes a deal like ESPN, Amazon more likely to happen or less just because it's going to be so expensive relative to what Apple's managed to spend? Well, I think the question here is whether Apple might be interested in talking to ESPN as well. Of course, we have to remember that Apple and Disney ESPN have had these long-standing relationships. Obviously, um, Bob Iger used to be very close with Steve Jobs, and the, the, those relationships go back a long way. I do have to point out that Wedbush issued a note saying, given the success of MLS, they believe that ESPN would be a good strategic fit for uh, for Apple, so we'll have to see what ha what comes there. But I would be surprised if Disney, ESPN are not talking to all the potential platform um, partners here uh, that are interested in sports. One thing is for sure, John: live sports are valuable. They've found success with this. Apple's going to be watching very closely to see if the people who sign up for Lionel Messi end up sticking around to watch their other shows um, and, and whether they become long-term subscribers to the platform or whether this is more of a short-term blip. And I think that's going to be the key, key thing that may uh, really influence how much more they want to invest in sports. Mark, um, Apple has a lot of money, but they don't necessarily like to spend it. Are they going to force others to spend the money in this situation? I don't know if they will, but I think there's a maybe the broad mega point here is that you know, you've got more bidders now for a live sports. So the live sports ticket, I think, and I'm not an expert in it, but you know, with three bigger bid, biggers, uh, bigger uh, bidders, <laughs> yes. that is three companies with massive cash piles and highly profitable businesses. That's Google, that's Amazon, and it's now uh, Apple. Um, you know, it's got to be great for the people who have the sports rights. Uh, and I, I think those tickets will go up in part because streaming does allow a broader audience um, just the ability to watch these uh, shows. I know they have to be in real time, but on any device and globally, it's just easier to stream it globally. Uh, so I just uh, I, I have a feeling that's really the big win here. It's the people who own the sports rights, the sports rights holders. You know, they have more bidders for their content from very large platforms. Good for them, and it just means the competitive dynamics are going to be rising. Probably co content costs are going to be rising for okay. the Apples, Googles, and Amazons, but they can afford it. Mark Mahaney, Steve Kovac, Julia Borston, thanks so much. Um, thanks, that's going to do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 